Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books. We draw from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Kenneth Schaffner, Distinguished University Professor in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Pittsburgh. His new book, Behaving, What's Genetic, What's Not, and Why Should We Care, is just out from Oxford University Press. The nature versus nurture debate has evolved into a genes versus environment debate, although it is also widely accepted that what we do, what we are like, and what mental illnesses we have or might be at risk for result from a complex combination of both. In this richly researched book, Schaffner assesses the impact of the enormous strides in recent decades in biology on the genetic contribution to behavior from the sequencing of the human genome and the development of a model organism, the nematode C. elegans, for explaining the relationship between genes and neural function and development. Schaffner considers the methodologies for determining genetic influence and the challenges by developmentalists and others of gene-focused research. He also defends a creeping form of reduction in which multi-level mechanistic explanations are possible in local and specific areas of biology, but which do not support sweeping claims that we are nothing but our genes. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Kenneth Schaffner. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very eager to be talking with you about your new book, Behaving, What's Genetic, What's Not, and Why Should We Care? And it's a, it's a great book that introduces a lot of the important advances in biology, in particular in genetics, over the past few decades, you know, starting with the, the sequencing of the human genome, the development of the uh, of a model organism for uh, investigating relations between genes and neural function and development, and a lot of other sort of methodological and important scientific advances, as well as the back and forth of you know studies claiming one thing about the relation between genes and behavior, and then others not replicating them or having very mixed sorts of uh, research records. So it's it's a really rich. Uh, discussion of the recent science um, and what we can derive, you know, philosophically from these views in terms of, uh, well, the philosophical discussion about uh, reduction, right? Are we nothing but our genes or is there a gene for X, you know, versus more as you, uh, the one of the buzzwords these days is the biopsychosocial approach, Right where the environment has a much greater role, so it's it's a great introduction to all of that. And before we get into the book itself, maybe we can have a little introduction about about yourself. Um, you know how you how you came to write this book, um, your own sort of background in both biology or medicine, actually, and philosophy, um, and then the relation between this book and uh, your previous book, uh, nineteen ninety three on discovery and explanation in biology and medicine. Sure. The, uh, the discovery and explanation in biology and medicine uh, 
was started all the way back in roughly 1971. Uh, I was impressed with reading Claude Bernard's uh, works and uh, thought that uh, it was really time, since it was very early in the development of anything like a professional philosophy of biology, to try to take a um, sort of synoptic approach to those kinds of issues. And uh, I was able to uh, happily uh, receive the Guggenheim uh, Grant Fellowship and between uh, 1973 and 74 began to outline that book. Uh, that took uh, many years, uh, filled in in the 1970s and the 1980s. The kind of work that I was doing uh, for that uh, led me into medical school. I finished a medical degree in 1986 and then applied uh, what I'd learned about, from physiology, genetics, immunology to the issues uh, in philosophy of biology. So the book was finally finished, came out in 1993. And at that point in time, I thought I wanted to go somewhere in a different direction and thought that though I'd worked a lot on reduction and reductionism, uh, and there's a roughly a 100-page chapter in the uh, Discovery and Explanation uh, book on it, uh, I wanted to take it in a different direction. I had uh, already uh, looked a little bit at the neurosciences and at the behavior of a a simple organism, the sea snail Ecclesia, that Eric Kandel you know, eventually won a Nobel Prize for. Right. And I uh, started to uh, you know, look a little bit deeper into that, uh, received some National Science Foundation support for it. But then Kandel was kind of um, uh, distant about uh, wanting to uh, have somebody come to his lab and, and work on that organism. Uh, happily, at that point in time, I went to a NIH conference on behavior on a variety of organisms. Uh, then uh, simple organisms were beginning to be explored. Uh, one of them was the famous uh, fruit fly Drosophila. Uh, another was the mouse. Uh, but I was intrigued with the, uh, the worm because uh, it looked like the genetics was much more tractable. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, having heard... Uh, some of the talks by uh, Corey Bargman uh, uh, about this kind of, uh, of work decided to turn in, in that direction. That was roughly 93, 94. Uh, that led to a uh, target article in Philosophy Science in 98, uh, which in modified form are uh, roughly three of the chapters in the behaving book. Uh, and I wanted to carry it on into uh, behavior of uh, humans and psychiatric genetics, which is a closely related field to human behavior genetics, uh, that led to work on DSM uh, 5 uh, with a number of people, including Ken Kendler, uh, who has played a, a very extraordinarily uh, powerful and important role in the uh, putting, putting together the final form of uh, DSM 5. And so, all of that sort of eventually came together in, in this book, uh, aided by support from NIH and the Hastings Center with a large grant uh, that looked at human behavioral uh, genetics. Uh, and the um, ultimate result was to uh, get this book finished. It, it had to be redone. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a draft completed roughly in 2005 when I returned from George Washington University to the University of Pittsburgh. But at that point in time, uh, 
the HapMap project uh, was just about finishing up, and they were beginning to uh, identify all of these uh, SNPs, of which we now know, you know several million, uh, that led to the opportunity to begin to look at uh, the genome-wide association studies. They began to come out in 2007. They really sort of upended the field, and we can talk a little bit more about that uh, in more specific terms a little bit later on. It uh, required rewriting a lot of the, uh, the book, so it, it didn't really get accepted until uh, 2013. Okay, wow. So, and I, I think all of that really, really shows in the volume because there's, a, it's, it's a, uh, and it's an important attempt to kind of assess, you know, all the amazing advances that have been happening over the past, you know, decade, two decades, three decades, but, you know, more recently, as you, as you mentioned. But maybe we should go back, start from a very, very basic standpoint, which is, it's a book about, as you put it, a, you know, sort of main themes in behavioral genetics and um, and psychiatric genetics as a as a sort of a subset of that. And you you do talk specifically, which I I do when I get to later, um, uh, personality disorders and or personality uh, and the relation between personality and genes, and then schizophrenia and genes. You have two chapters devoted to those particular aspects. But um, how is behavioral genetics and its subset? psychiatric genetics. How, how are these related to population genetics? Uh, in a sense, uh, my understanding of population genetics is it is uh, really a kind of uh, way to look at uh, sort of evolutionary uh, implications of genetics. Uh, there, uh, one is, I think, not so much concerned with the, the phenotypes as it is with the transmission of genetics over various kinds of generations and uh, the fixity of some of those genes uh, on ways they might change. Uh, population genetics you know, came out of uh, a generalization of Mendelian genetics you know, to populations and to populations over periods of time. Uh, and the, you know, the major uh, uh, players in, in, in that area were people like uh, Fisher, uh, and then Haldane and, and Wright, especially, that doesn't really tell us too much about behavior. Uh, in fact, there's a kind of a uh, gap between people who work in uh, evolutionary biology and issues involving sort of behavioral genetics and psychiatric genetics. So, so if one looks at the standard texts in behavioral genetics and in psychiatric genetics, there's there's relatively little in those texts about uh, evolution, uh, even though there have been disciplines, uh, sociobiology um, and uh, sort of psychological kinds of uh, genetics uh, that have tried to bridge those gaps. I think they haven't been you know, done all that successfully, you know, in part because there are no fossils of behavior that we can go and look empirically mm-hmm. check on things. So uh, I think that uh, population genetics is an important sort of backdrop, but uh, it doesn't play that much of a role in any of the standard work in psychiatric or behavioral genetics. That's which is which is sort of interesting because you know one of the background issues, um, you know, actually that you get to in terms of uh, why should we care uh, about genetics uh, is this idea that somehow we're determined. You know, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that, but that, you know, somehow we're determined to, 
to act in certain ways because of our gene. We're hardwired, as as we'll say, and and of course that that hardwiring would be a matter of of evolution. We're just you know we we just act this way because that's the way the evolution has formed us to be. So that that it's an interesting um, conceptual gap that you know even if these are two sciences that haven't quite or or two approaches within biology that haven't yet really meshed in the in the sort of popular imagination when you start talking about gene, genes the the very close relationship between you know something being in the genes and something being in the genes because that's the way we evolved are you know these things are almost inseparable you you start with the concept of heritability um and this is a very you know, central concept to behavioral genetics, but it's one that, as you point out, uh, is is very easy to to confuse. Um, so, just to give an example that came to my mind immediately was, you know, we have all, you know all humans have you know genetically a, an an opposable thumb, and yet having an opposable thumb is has zero heritability. And so, uh, and in contrast, you mentioned schizophrenia. Um, the risk for developing that is is about uh, the heritability. Uh, is about well, the risk is accounted for approximately forty eight percent or so uh, by the genes. And so, could you explain a bit? Uh, well, explain the the notion of heritability and and why it's so important in in these studies. I think of uh, one of the problems with heritability is that uh, just as you pointed out, using that example, is that it sort of plays tricks with the mind, it leads to uh, inappropriate kinds of inferences. Uh, I think one way to think about it is that. What heritability does is it accounts for uh, individual differences, uh, in effect, in a population, but uh, as accounting for the variation that one sees uh, in that population for a particular kind of a phenotype. Uh, that phenotype uh, can be something as uh, more or less benign as, say, height. And we might come come back to that uh, later, or uh, fingerprint. Uh, Similarity, uh, and also as more controversial, it's been discussed extensively in the history of the literature, uh, cognitive capacities like like IQ, but as well as other kinds of disorders like schizophrenia and, and, and depression. So, uh, what does the heritability uh, do? It gives you a very kind of a gross pointer to uh, where you think the genes might be accounting for the variation that we see uh, for that phenotype in that population. On the other hand, the heritability doesn't indicate anything about the specific ways that the genes work or what genes there are. Uh, It is a a very kind of a gross parameter uh, that uh, suggests that perhaps if heritability is reasonably high, then to account for the differences that we see between people who have a disorder or have a particular phenotype versus those that don't uh, is to uh, look at those kinds of uh, features that are uh, relatively high in heritability. And so in schizophrenia and in, uh, say, height, 
Uh, we, we do think that uh, heritability runs something like uh, 80%. I sometimes like to think of those kinds of relationships uh, um, in somewhat different ways. Is, you know, what, is the, what is the risk uh, if one um, has an identical twin? What is the likelihood that one would develop that particular trait or that particular disorder? Uh, and that might give us a little bit of a better handle on same kind of issues that heritability tries to uh, get a handle on. The other problem with heritability has been pointed out by philosopher biologists like Lewington and others is that uh, you really have to pay attention to the environment because heritability is contingent on environments. Uh, and that's part of the formal definition and it's part of the conceptual definition so that whether or not something is quote, genetic, unquote, and the extent to which it's malleable or changeable is, is going to depend upon the nature of the environment that one is in. Uh, so that's the reason, you know, carefully uh, about it, not to um, overemphasize, you know, what comes out of it, not to confuse it with unchangeability and not to confuse it with uh, changes in environment that might significantly change that heritability. Yeah, so that's, that's an important point because... I mean, do you, do you think the concept is, is a helpful one um, outside of its very specific context? I mean, you, one of the points you make in the book uh, at some point is that, you know, high heritability is, is not related to, you know, finding a specific underlying gene or, or even just a few of them. And it is contingent, as you just mentioned, on the environment. And all of this, uh, you know, all that, it's, it's, that's not that nuanced. So I sort of, wonder are you know is is the concept itself a helpful one for helping lay people people outside of the specific context of biology helping them understand the relationship between genes and behavior i think it may be more misleading than it actually is actually helpful i, I think it's it's helpful for the professional investigators to perhaps plan their research programs uh, and to uh, look for genetic aspects that might relate to a particular kind of trait that they're that they're interested in. Uh, but just a very brief anecdote: uh, there was a famous or perhaps infamous uh, meeting at uh, the University of Maryland back in 1995 on genes and crime. This was uh, supported by the National Institutes of Health with a research grant, uh, and it uh, led to actually being invaded by uh, groups of people who were opposed to that kind of a research program involving fist fights and a, uh, a police uh, a police were called to uh, break, break up the conference temporarily. But at that conference, there were very prominent speakers. I, I attended to essentially talk about the worm, uh, but there were people talking about heritability and crime. And... Uh, one of the major investigators uh, said that it really is inappropriate to talk about heritability, that it's misleading in this context. Uh, and then, of course, uh, after saying that, his next slide was a long list of heritabilities for particular traits related to genes and crime. Uh-huh. It's almost as if they recognize the problems, but they can't stop talking about it. Okay. Yeah, it's, it is too bad because it, it, I don't think 
things have improved since then, from what I can tell. No, I think it's still somewhat misleading. And one of the areas that we might get to towards the end of our discussion, uh, I did not do too much with, with IQ uh, and, uh, and race in, uh, in this book, but uh, a sequel book will, will address some of those issues. And uh, that's where there was a lot of uh, fractious discussion at least twice in the history of, uh, of this discipline, you know, first coming out from some of the work by Arthur Jensen back in 1969, 1970, and then with the Bell Curve, which came up right. before. Again, uh, in a sense, confusing what the implications were of these various studies and what the implications were for uh, ethnic uh, uh, differences. Uh, so I think it's, it's still a set of issues, and I... I suspect we'll continue to see it, you know, yet again. One of the critical points that you make throughout the book is the idea that, you know, the the relations between genes and and phenotypes or, you know, behavior at the the organism level or personality traits, things like that. It's it's very complicated. And you, uh, you develop what you summarize as what you call eight rules. I mean, they're not laws or anything like that, Um, but they're sort of regularities or, or something, even that word philosophically is a little bit, maybe a bit too strong, but you use the word rules. And these are rules for causal relationships between genes and behavior and various steps therein. So for example, one rule is that you often have many genes that are causally related to the development of a particular, of one neuron. One neuron can be closely related to many behaviors. Uh, you have different environments and histories which are related to different ways of gene expression, which are related causally to um, different behaviors. So you have a, a sort of a framework of eight different rules for the relationships between, say, genes, neurons, uh, you know, behavior, environment, can you say something, you know, explain a bit about those rules and how they complicate, you know, how the, the, how the gene for X picture has, has kind of just basically been just blown up for, for many, if not all, uh, phenotypes? Yeah, I think that there's probably at least two aspects to it, that kind of an answer. The, the, those rules were, in a sense, inductively generated from a... Uh, a deep and long analysis of the uh, the worm C. elegans. Uh, what I wanted to do was to uh, see exactly in an organism that we know you know how many genes there are, and we know an awful lot about the circuits of that organism. Uh, it was the organism that Sidney Brenner chose to begin to investigate the simplest organism he could find that had a nervous system how genes might relate to uh, behaviors. And I was lucky enough to uh, uh, be introduced to Corey Bargman. Uh, Corey is the uh, co-director of Obama's Brain uh, Research Program. And uh, she has uh, been uh, an investigator in that area uh, since, I think, the late 80s until until now. I took some of her papers and then uh, read a number of other papers uh, looking for what were those relationships between genes and, and behaviors. And I found that uh, you know, one of the first points she made was that well, genes don't affect the behaviors directly. They work through neural systems. 
And that was, in a sense, the beginning of looking for what were some of the generalities that would capture some of the complexity of the relationships between uh, genes and behavior. Uh, and out of the, the literature and a variety of different kinds of uh, uh, experimental preparations and such, I tried to distill uh, what amounted to roughly eight, eight generalizations. Uh, they weren't, you know, you know too deep. Uh, but they seem to, when they were put together, uh, capture some of the complexity of those uh, relationships. In uh, one of the uh, one of the reviewers uh, of the philosophy science paper where I first introduced those rules said, "Well, aren't these obvious?" And uh, they weren't that obvious at the time. And in fact, Corey Bargman had thought that as one drilled down into this organism, uh, one would find a relationship. It could be characterized as one gene, uh, one type of behavior. Uh, and in fact, uh, the story that I tell in the book uh, about some of Bartman's work and the Bono's work, they thought that they found in one gene, uh, this, this NPR1 gene, a switch that would change the uh, eating behavior of C. elegans from uh, eating in a solitary way uh, on a, in a Petri dish to uh, eating in clumps on a Petri dish. Mm-hmm. It, it's turned out, I think, that she's probably modified, uh, you know, her views so that uh, she's now quite uh, attuned to the complexity that we find. So those those rules were an attempt to, you know, generalize from these experiments to show some of the complexity. The overall take-home messages that I got from the book is is just how complex it is and how, you know, we really, for for the most part, and even in Kind of the the best of cases, like maybe Huntington's disease or something, where you can identify a particular locus. You know the the environment, uh, and and there are different. There's the in utero environment. There's you know the outside of the, you know the self the person environment. I mean, the the complexity there is so great that to even talk about a gene for X. You know, the, the question, the real question, as far as I could tell, was not so much, yeah, been there, done that, shouldn't do it anymore, but what can we come up with to replace that, that rule, gene for X, with other rules that will give us a better picture of what's really going on? That's the, I sort of saw your eight rules as, as a move in that direction. Now, remember that those eight rules came out of uh, investigating the C. elegans organism. You know, it's, it's got, uh, in, in effect, uh, you know, 302 neurons, uh, 5,000 synapses, you know, roughly 1,000 genes. So it's, it's quite simple. Now, the, the other answer to you know, the issue of complexity in rules is that when I wrote that uh, set of papers in the original form. This was pre-GWAS. And uh, there was still hope. GWAS being the the genome-wide? Association studies work Mm -hmm. really didn't begin to come out until roughly 2006, 2007. And, uh, you know, that, in in a sense, is is the second part of um, the complexity source. So so when uh, people began to look at... uh, other kinds of disorders. Initially, they thought there would be some dominant genes in schizophrenia uh, and some dominant genes in, say, Alzheimer's uh, disorder affecting memory and such. Uh, 
Now, some of that is still the case. Uh, one of the most interesting, very recent developments uh, in the Alzheimer's area is in DSM-5, this uh, you know, 2013 most recent version of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual mm-hmm. for Psychiatric Disorders. That is, I think, one of the first examples of a, uh, of a disorder that is now diagnosable by using a particular uh, set of genes. There are some early-onset genes that I mentioned briefly in my discussion about Alzheimer's in the book, uh, but uh, at that point in time that I finished the book, DSM-5 hadn't really come out in its uh, final form. But now you can actually diagnose a person as having Alzheimer's if they have some of these uh, this three roughly uh, dominant genes that affect people with uh, Alzheimer's in their in their fifties. So there's still you know occasionally something like one gene one disorder uh, example. It's like the Huntington's thing, but but that pales against many other diseases. Now in the area, for example, of schizophrenia and also personality genetics. What GWAS has shown is that there are hundreds of genes, maybe even a thousand genes that might affect schizophrenia coming in different packages and working in different ways. Uh, and that's where the field is uh, sort of beginning to uh, focus on, on that and also on environmental factors, on immunological interactions with the genetics of schizophrenia. Uh, so uh, this, you know, the second set of arguments is that what the uh, GWAS revolution has done is to show that there are many, many, many genes that uh, affect in very complicated uh, ways these various kinds of traits and disorder. And the same thing holds true for height. You know, there are, I looked up the most recent publication, I think from 2014 in Nature, said that they had identified 700 genes, or at least 700 SNPs that were fairly closely related to genes all of which had uh, very small effects on uh, on height, and this was done in a population of some thirty thousand individuals a day. So there's uh, you know many ways to tell the tale about complexity. And some of it comes out of simple organism work, but some of it now comes out of this uh, uh, GWAS and GCTA uh, genome complex trait you know analysis uh, um, approaches to disorders. Can you give us a brief? Uh, explanation of how the genome-wide association studies go? Essentially, the um, best way to think of it is that uh, what was needed was the, uh, the genome project, the Human Genome Project, you know, that was started uh, you know, roughly uh, back about 1990 you know, to sequence the entire genome is the backdrop to that. Uh, but they had to do a, a, another analysis uh, they had to look at also variation across uh, individuals, uh, and they had to do uh, you know sequencing of these uh, three billion base pairs. Uh, what they found uh, doing the uh, analysis of one of the strands, the, the haploid account, sometimes it's called the HapMap, uh, was that there were uh, millions of different variations, uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms, that's abbreviation of, of that is SNPs. Uh, these are, you know, simple mutations like uh, thymine for an adenine that uh, often don't make any difference uh, to what's going on in a, in a particular individual. Mm-hmm. But they're good markers. Uh, so if you can identify them and you find that they're reasonably common in large populations, 
and you can use those uh, as ways to uh, you know begin to map differences between uh, you know, between individuals, and therefore uh, look for things that might be associated, like interesting phenotypes uh, that might be studied, uh, associated with variations of you know a million different kinds of uh, uh, variations. Uh, now the SNPs themselves are not genes; they're you know essentially loci. Uh, they, in effect, are genes, but they're not genes that are known to be causative, but they're good maps. And as a result of um, having that, that map, uh, one can do these uh, association studies where you can look at, uh, you know, what are the, what's the picture given the maps of, um, you know, a population of people that have schizophrenia versus those that don't, and see, you know, where things begin to uh, point to the differences, uh, now, what, what that amounts to is you're looking across all of the chromosomes uh, at at least, say, now a, a million differences. Uh, and uh, that means that you're testing hypotheses uh, that are multiple, multiple, multiple hypotheses. So uh, as a result of doing those kinds of studies, uh, they have to do all sorts of statistical corrections, which means, uh, if you remember your statistics, that you need very large numbers of people. Mm-hmm because of all the hypotheses that are being, you know, checked. So, you know, they, they now talk about uh, looking at 50,000 twin pairs in order to look at some of these variations, you know, across uh, these uh, uh, genome-wide uh, analyses. Uh, it has uh, really begun to revolutionize a wide variety of genetic studies, not in the behavioral area only. I mean, there's been uh, very important discoveries about macular degeneration and Crohn's disease, uh, and also uh, diabetes, uh, type 1 and type 2, are using these new kinds of methodologies. Uh, But they do require enormously large groups of people. So one of the things that you you just mentioned that in the latest paper you saw something like 700 genes uh, in some way that makes some small, tiny contribution to height, or at least to, I should probably say more specifically, to explaining the heritability of of height. You raise the issue of what you call the the missing heritability problem, or or what what people in the field call the missing heritability problem, um, which is nicely illustrated by the case of, of height. Can you can you explain that, since it seems to play a pretty important yeah, those, role? Those 700 uh, SNPs. Oh, okay. Which, Sorry. Which are uh, they're closely related to genes, and you can you know sort of think through you know what what affects height. You know, it's everything from bone structure to muscle structure to uh, uh, general health and, and such. Uh, so, it turns out that height is is, is roughly uh, you know close to close to ninety percent uh, heritable. That is, you know, identical twins are going to be pretty close in terms of their resemblance uh, on issues involving height. Uh, one of the interesting things about missing heritability is that the gold standard is really the use of uh, sort of the older twin studies uh, that, you know, have estimated what heritability should be, uh, taking those as uh, reasonably definitive. Uh, we talked before about schizophrenia as having heritability of around 80%. Uh, and then the question is, 
what will we find out from the GWAS studies and those genes or the SNPs that have uh, been found that seem to account for some of the uh, heritability? Those 700 uh, genes or SNPs account for only about 20% of the uh, differences in height. Uh, so you've, you've got uh, you know, still something like 60 to 70% of the variation that we don't know, you know where it's coming from. Uh, and that's the missing heritability. Uh, the idea that I think the investigators have is that this is accounted for by other SNPs, other genes that have such low signals, uh, that is such uh, low effect, uh, that uh, we'll have to get even larger studies in order to begin to reveal what those are. And until that can be done, uh, there's this gap between the heritability that's estimated by using the traditional types of twin studies versus the heritability that can be accounted for by using the GWAS studies. And even in GWAS, as we've already, I think, indicated, we don't really know in most cases what those genes are. We just have some suggestions as to what they might be uh, and uh, you know, what, what they might be doing. One of the main uh, critiques, you might say, of of the you know the focus on on genes has been the what you call the developmentalist challenge. Maybe you can give us a sense of of what that position is. You you divide it into several different types of what you call the seven deadly sins of causation and the four major mistakes of classical approaches to the problem of of nature versus nurture. Um, uh, could you could you say something about the the developmentalist challenge? Yeah, I, uh, that in a sense came out of the uh, the work that uh, I was doing with with C. elegans. I had uh, I had in- encountered when I started doing the um, investigation of behavioral genetics uh, criticisms that people like uh, like Lewinton uh, and then. Uh, some of the work that came out of Ayama, uh, Susan Ayama's work, uh, Paul Griffith's work, uh, suggesting that there was an over uh, attention to uh, sort of genocentrism, that uh, it was the genes that were uh, accounting for uh, various kinds of differences in the, in the behavioral area. So uh, what I had done was to go through uh, a number of the criticisms of uh, simple forms of gene behavior relationships, and tried to identify uh, what were some of the themes and the general ideas that the critics of uh, behavioral genetics were utilizing. And uh, I sort of extracted from that, uh, as you say, sort of seven seven deadly sins. These are uh, sins that the developmentalists alleged were being committed by the people that were sort of genetic Terminists and uh, oversimplified uh, genetics. So they would say that genes are a, a blueprint for the organism. That would be, say, one example of, uh, of one of the uh, sins. And sins or mistakes, these um, amount to contrast between uh, what the developmentalists thought were more accurate ways of describing the complexity versus the oversimplified accounts that were being used by many of the investigators that were doing behavioral genetics at the time. So I identified roughly you know, 11 of those general ideas. And, and then, um, uh, you know, there were things like uh, 
uh, one gene causes one behavior, that the DNA sequences contain the essences of behavioral information. Those were those sins and the, the mistakes were things like uh, empirical studies can easily disentangle the effects of heredity and environment into specific percentages. Uh, I analyzed those in the context of the C. elegans and uh, research projects. And then uh, out of that, it extracted what I thought were roughly sort of five general ideas that seemed to be the, the core of the, uh, the objections. And it had to do with, you know, are, are genes really special uh, or are they just one of another uh, kind of uh, causal roles? Can you actually disentangle the environment and the, and the genes? Can you make any kinds of uh, predictions that might be involved? Uh, so those uh, developmentalists, uh, I thought they were very appropriate challenges to the simplified forms that some of the behavior geneticists were pursuing. Uh, but I thought that the developmentalists tend to overreact uh, and to overly criticize and uh, I thought that some of their ideas were were quite right, uh, and others were uh, a little bit too strong. Uh, Lewinton, for example, thought that you, know, you could never get predictions of behavior because of the complexity. There were behavior was in some sense emergent from uh, the various kinds of gene that interactions, and uh, uh, so I I split a difference. Uh, uh, Paul Griffiths was a commentator on the first version of the, those papers that were in uh, Philosophy of Science back in 1998. And uh, Griffiths uh, anointed me as a developmentalist. Uh, I, I think that that's a little bit too strong. I accepted some of their theses and uh, modified some of their other uh, theses. So, uh, that was the, the challenge. I, I welcomed the challenge. I tried to uh, sort of pick and choose what I thought were valid accounts that they were giving and criticize some of the uh, the other accounts. And in a sense, we still go on and do that. Uh, as you, uh, I think, know, uh, Paul Griffiths and Carlos Statz has, uh, you know, produced a book on genetics and philosophy, and uh, they are still, um, you know, pursuing something like the developmentalist challenge in the context of contemporary work. Yeah, I think the, the genocentrism, is a, that's a good sort of word to capture the, the general tenor, I would say, of, of, um, of the discussion. I mean, you still maintain that genes, uh, although you do take on board uh, some, of the, some of the points from the developmentalists and, and disagree to some extent with others, um, you, you still say that genes have a, um, a sort of first among equals role for both epistemic and, and heuristic reasons um, in terms of explaining behavior. I think um, could you, could the, you, you know, explain that position, I mean, and, yeah, and it, defend it? It's a position that is still, I think, argued back and forth uh, in the philosophy of biology uh, area. And one of the uh, writers who's Still being, still defending, in a sense, an even stronger form of genocentrism uh, is Ken Waters. Uh, mm-hmm. He seems to think that the, uh, that the genes uh, have some kind of an ontological priority in uh, accounting for uh, various kinds of traits, and that uh, uh, they are, uh, in a very strong sense, uh, ontologically uh, 
the you know the explainers of various kinds of phenotypes. Uh, uh, I see the uh, the genes you know in a network manner, and I see them as particularly heuristically important because uh, they're simpler than uh, say what we can understand about proteins and protein interactions. Uh, they're a lot simpler than environmental interactions, you know, on a developing organism. Uh, we have some pretty good, what I would call, general theories of the gene. Uh, and, you know, that comes to us from, from Mendel and Morgan through Watson and Crick. You know, we know how the genes work. We know what they are. Uh, we, we know, in a sense, you know, how they interact. Uh, we can, uh, in a sense, look at a linear molecule like DNA and make, uh, important predictions. There is a genetic code. Uh, genes are sort of key ways that we can interact with organisms, uh, and we can classify organisms by uh, using uh, genes and uh, by using the uh, DNA sequences and such. So I think that there are some very powerful tools that are involved there. But at the same time, uh, genes don't act, you know, on their own. Uh, they come, you know, to us in cells. Uh, they come to us with proteins. Uh, cells reproduce. Genes themselves purely don't reproduce, you know, except in very special circumstances uh, uh, in test tubes. Uh, and that uh, in order to account for anything like life and for various kinds of properties developing, uh, we have to take into account other factors in the system. The developmentalists have tended to say, you know, there all of those factors are on a par. Uh, I think that uh, epistemically and heuristically, the, the genes still have a, a, a bit more going for them, and uh, that's uh, you know the position that I've tried to sketch. Uh, I summarize some of Water's arguments in I think it was chapter eight in the book. Uh, criticize some of them, partly from a developmentalist point of view. Uh, pointing out that sometimes it's the environments which are the key switches that are involved, uh, even in things like C. elegans, uh, and that it often depends upon the context, the kinds of questions that one is uh, trying to uh, direct one's attention to. Okay, so that I mean that sounds a bit more more ecumenical, I would I would say than that at least many in that camp might want to to endorse. You know, in a sense. I mean, there seems to be a difference between the role that genes can play because of their relative simplicity, given our, our you know, where we're at now in terms of, um, of knowledge, um, and the role that they actually sort of do play in terms of uh, explaining our behavior. Is, so is, when you say, I mean, heuristic, is it, is it I, mean, I guess I'm trying to assess just how deep the commitment to a more, you know, to the gene as, I mean, you're not going as far as waters, but you're sort of not quite being in the, in the developmentalist camp. Do you see that as, well, that's just because that's where we are right now in terms of the, you know, the history of biology in a way, um, but it's, it's nothing, it's not deeper than that, and, and for all we know, you know, in the future, when we finally get our eyes off from from just the genes and we look at the environment more closely and, and direct more research time and money and 
to the environment, uh, it could turn out that you know the genes are important, but you know they're no it, they're, it's it's no more justified in the end to focus on them as you know the first among equals than it would be. I don't know to to focus on the spark plugs because that's what we have more access to. I think that's part of the issue. Um, part of it has to do with the uh, as I mentioned before we have pretty good set of theories about how genes work. It's harder to understand exactly how the environment uh, affects the development of, of cells and multicellular organisms and such. Uh, I've been looking uh, recently a kind of an offshoot project uh, uh, related to uh, the uh, sense comparison between what we can learn about cancer and its genetics and the role of the environment uh, and where there could be uh, various kinds of factors that are that are involved, uh, and also a relationship that comes out of behavioral genetics. So it turns out that uh, the GWAS uh, studies of schizophrenia have identified as one of the strongest uh, areas in the genetics is something that's called the mixed histocompatibility complex. Uh, these are the uh, areas in the genome uh, that affect the immune system. Uh, So that's where the strongest signal is coming out of the GWAS results. So people are wondering, you know, what is it about the immune system that affects schizophrenia? And uh, the answers aren't in yet, but we do know from from cancer uh, work that cancers will develop depending on what happens in the utero environment and the, uh, the kinds of infections that uh, mothers have when they are uh, pregnant uh, with a, uh, a fetus. Uh, and it looks like there are very important sort of developmental uh, interactions between uh, the immunological system uh, and uh, the system which affects the development of the brain, uh, as well as immunological interactions uh, with cancer. So uh, I think that you have to learn a lot more about these other systems and the way they, they interact. In, in a sense, it is the biopsychosocial uh, kind of model, mm-hmm. but as uh, illustrated uh, in terms of something like interactions between the immune system, uh, the uh, neural system, and uh, even the endocrine system. So let me, let me just ask you about uh, reduction. I mean, that's you know, one of the critical philosophical positions that you that you talk about um, as a result of looking at all the the recent work in, in genetic behavioral genetics and, and psychiatric genetics what is your view of reduction I mean you, you divide you know sort of sweeping reduction the more historical Nagelian type thing from what you call uh, your creeping reductions which which seem in essence to be sort of local uh, small, local, multi-level mechanistic explanations. Um, can, you, can you explain your, your position on reduction? Yeah, let me uh, step back a little bit. In mm-hmm. history. Uh, when I first started looking at the issue of reduction, uh, it was, uh, I think, when I was a, a first-year graduate student at Columbia, and I talked with Ernest Nagel about what I might think about writing a dissertation on, even though the dissertation was several years further down the road, and he had uh, suggested that there were a couple of very interesting papers that had come out from the work of Paul Feyerabend, uh, 
mm-hmm. critical of some work that Nagel had done on theory reduction. Uh, Nagel's, Nagel's example was uh, the explanation of uh, thermodynamics by statistical mechanics. And uh, he said that Feyerabend had been very critical of him. And uh, by the way, there was a book that would be soon coming out. This is 1961. Mm-hmm. That would uh, support something like what Feyerabend was after. And it was by a, uh, a physicist named Thomas Kuhn, <laughs> who was going to uh, produce a book that wasn't yet out on the structure of scientific revolutions that would make some similar kinds of points. Uh, so I began to look at relationships in reduction in physics and in chemistry and in biology. And in the early stages, it looked like something like a modified form of the Nagel model would work fairly well in physics. Uh, and I published an article in the Journal of Philosophy in 2012 in which I showed how far one could explain uh, something like optics by uh, electromagnetic theory using something like a modified form of Nagelian reduction. But that seems to work pretty well in physics, because in physics we can actualize theories. The theories are, in some sense, simplified. You can interrelate them in nice ways. You get what they, what's called theory reduction. That doesn't work in biology. Uh, and it became pretty clear to me in the 1970s that we just didn't have theories like that in biology. What we had were uh, all of these sort of complicated models. Uh, some people now like to call them mechanisms. And they work in various areas, but they don't extend very broadly. Uh, so uh, when I looked at some of the best examples of an explanation of some biological phenomena in terms of the underlying uh, chemistry, uh, the first example that I looked at was the Operon model uh, that Jacob and Minot had developed. And there it seems to you know, work nicely, but it only works uh, easily in, in E. coli. Uh, you can get some um, explanations of some things there, but you can't extend them easily. Uh, it took uh, biology many, many years to begin to see how it worked in eukaryotic organisms, uh, how much more complicated accounts you know, began to develop that related genes and various kinds of uh, uh, phenotypes. And it seemed to me that what you were beginning to get was something like patchy reductions, partial reductions, interlevel reductions uh, in biology uh, that you uh, didn't get in, in physics when you could do your uh, work there. Uh, so uh, I still think that's the case. We can, uh, given the complexity of biology and the variation that evolution has produced, uh, we can get uh, some nice areas where we can explain some things, uh, but they don't really amount to anything like a general theory of the behavior of the organism. So that's, uh, that would be a sweeping theory. And there are some philosophers, uh, I think the Churchlands still defend something like the possibility of sweeping reductions. Uh, I think that uh, Dan Dennett has called those greedy reductions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tend to think of the reductions that we get uh, as being partial and, and local. And that's what I continue to see uh, you know, in the area of behavioral genetics. So how, how local exactly? I mean, you just mentioned the lack of... Operon model for, for E. coli, and you said, you know, it, the original uh, Jacob Monod model worked for, you know, that particular organism, you know, that particular mechanism, uh, but it didn't extend that easily. Um, so how, how local are these mechanistic uh, explanations or these, these, these local, you know, little, small reductions? 
Well, uh, I think, you know, even if you look at something like uh, E. coli and if you, uh, you look at uh, what's going on in terms of um, uh, phage and uh, phage lambda, uh, that the, the systems that you uh, describe there uh, are, are, are quite different. Uh, there are similarities, uh, but they're, they're not identities uh, between what you get in different operons. In fact, I think one biologist referred to the, uh, op- the types of operons that one found in just E. coli as a, a panoply of, of operons, uh, mm-hmm. some involving positive regulation, some involving like lack negative regulation, and such. So uh, the, uh, you know, the sweep and the scope, you can't take one simple model and say it applies in a wide variety of circumstances. You have to keep sort of modifying them and changing, uh, changing them. I think we'll see that uh, in something like schizophrenia genetics. I think there'll be lots of different kinds of schizophrenia where uh, there's some type that's related to some set of genetic mutations and environmental insults, and there'll be other forms of the schizophrenia that are related to different pathways, different genes. So they, they will tend to be local. That'll be a problem for treatment. Uh, one will, in some sense, have to identify the, uh, the different points uh, where one can do the interventions, and I think they will differ. Okay. So, I mean, you also mentioned the, the Churchlands, and, yeah, they've, uh, at least in, in, in the past, of course, in, in terms of uh, uh, cognition, you know, their, their reductionist uh, proclivities were pretty, pre- were pretty clear an issue that comes up in that particular context more than more than maybe generally in philosophy biology is is the whole idea of a multiple realization or multiple realizability you know the idea that the same function can be can be subserved by many different sorts of of uh, mechanisms or explanations or structures um how does does your view of reduction have anything to say about that particular debate that's also that's often connected to debates about reduction? Oh, I, I think that uh, multiple realizability, I guess, could have strong forms and weaker forms. Mm-hmm. I think that in terms of, uh, say, specific forms of something like a disorder like schizophrenia, uh, that you know there there will be different ways in which you'll have a sort of a common end point uh, and uh, different routes that will you know, end up at that sort of common end point. Uh, we still don't know enough about what those pathways are. Uh, we might have a better handle on how those pathways might work uh, in, say, something like Alzheimer's disease. But even there, you know, the field is still uncertain uh, in, say, Alzheimer's, is it the plaques uh, that are, you know, being produced that result in the neurological damage, or is it the uh, the tangles that come out of, you know, the, the tau factors that produce mm-hmm. that end result, or are there, you know, two forms uh, that are involved? Uh, you know, going back to, say, diabetes, uh, there's a very different pathophysiology for juvenile diabetes, you know, versus adult-onset diabetes, uh, the interventions that one takes are, are you know, generally quite different. Uh, and uh, the, uh, it was required to, even though it looked like 
you know, diabetes might be realized by one common kind of pathway or, or mechanism. It turned out that, you know, it diverged. Mm-hmm. There was an inf- insult to the, to the pancreas through autoimmune factors in the juvenile diabetes that can only be treated with insulin, whereas in uh, the adult form of diabetes, the, the pathway was realized in terms of insulin resistance. You know, that could be overcome by different ways of dealing uh, with it. So, yeah, I think there'll be multiple realizability. I don't think it's necessarily going to turn out to be intractable, though there are some people in the behavioral genetics area, like uh, Eric Turkheimer, uh, with whom I've worked quite a bit, uh, who think that uh, the complexity is going to be so great uh, that there'll be multiple, multiple realizabilities, and we really are not going to be able to you know, tease out some a small number of these relatively common pathways. Mm-hmm. So I think of it as an empirical issue. Yeah. Not, not necessarily intractable, you know, as of yet. There's so much that we haven't had a chance to talk about, which is kind of what I suspected when we started, because there is so much in the book to, to, to discuss. Is there, is there some final uh, word you would like to say about the book uh, before, before we end our conversation? No, I, th- I think uh, the, the book is, is doing well. Uh, they, the, the first printing sold out, but they're in the process of reprinting it, so it should be uh, available uh, again. It's now come out in both uh, a Kindle book and, uh, and a Nook book uh, as well. So uh, there is a lot in the book. Uh, it's a complicated uh, story with many facets and, and such. Uh, I think that readers of the book could, you know, look at one of the early chapters, uh, introduction, give it kind of an overview, and uh, the end uh, chapter, I think it's chapter nine, uh, gives a pretty good uh, detailed summary of uh, where the book has gone. And I think, you know, when, even though there's a lot of complexity and detail, uh, people can then, you know, go and read those portions of things that they, uh, you know, would want to delve into in, in more depth. The problem with the field is that it's still evolving. Right. You don't have a really good handle on personality genetics at all. And, uh, you know, they're having to go back and start from square one with sort of GWAS analysis. They, they thought they had a breakthrough in terms of certain traits uh, from the Caspian Moffat work. Uh, and then a lot of that has, I think, uh, evaporated uh, in the light of uh, genome-wide uh, analyses. So uh, it's, it's a field which is still, you know, evolving and, and further forming. Uh, but the, the, I think the book can give you an orientation. We uh, were able to get a really nice index so that one can you know track back to look at those things that are of special interest. Last question: What's what's on your horizon next? I mean, you have another book planned, or just some articles? Same topic, different topics? I, I do have another book. So the first book in this area is called Behaving, and uh, the second book is going to be called Choosing. And what I want to look at are the uh, influences that genetics may have, behavioral genetics might have on, uh, on choosing and uh, choice and uh, living a good life. And uh, for, for doing that, that's given me a chance to go back and look at issues involving cognitive capacity and on restrictions involving choice, a much deeper analysis of uh, so-called free will uh, uh, kinds of issues, as well as impulse control uh, and uh, what might make a life worth living that could be potentially affected by genetics. So that's the, the next project. I've already started on it, and uh, uh, I 
we'll uh, be working on it for the next few years. Excellent. I look forward to seeing that for sure. But we, we are at now out of time, so I just want to say thank you again for, for joining us. Um, it's been a very interesting, uh, wide-ranging conversation, and I wish you luck with the, with the next book. Well, thank you, and thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to my interview with Kenneth Schaffner, Distinguished University Professor in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Pittsburgh. We've been talking about his new book, Behaving, What's Genetic, What's Not, and Why Should We Care, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.